This is where others won't. My guest on this episode is Michael Lombardi, an NFL executive who's worked with three titans of the football industry, Al Davis, Bill Walsh, and Bill Belichick. Mike's career is the definition of where others won't. If you like the show, please don't forget to leave a rating on your favorite podcast platform. But for now, enjoy the conversation. Mike Lombardi, welcome to Where Others Won't. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. It's good to be here. I apologize for being a little late and delay you, but it's uh, thankfully you held on and, uh, you know, it's better late than never, right? Absolutely. We've been trying to put this show together for a little while, but we've finally done it and uh, we're going to kill it. So let me start with this. I, like I said, I've been meaning to, to chat for a little while. Where Others Won't and the whole name came from this idea that there are certain organizations that I view in the sports world that look where others won't for competitive advantage. And, and one of them is obviously the New England Patriots. And you're someone who's had the honor of working with people like Bill Belichick and the Patriots. You've worked with Bill Walsh at the 49ers and Al Davis, and you wrote a book about it, uh, Gridiron Genius, which has just come out and is on all sorts of lists all over the internet. Um, from a football and a leadership perspective. One person that I wanted to ask you about, though, is is Bill Walsh, because you, you start the book uh, talking about your experience with him and the 49ers. And you, you talk even about his legacy being in the X's and O's and the tactics, but really kind of his, at his heart, he was a, a recruiter and, and there was a lot of focus on organizational development. What kind of legacy has Bill Walsh left in that department? We Most people know about the West Coast offense, but from an organizational development perspective, what's the legacy that he's left all across the NFL, broader sports, and even into corporate culture? Well, I, I think the, the reality that Walsh was able to articulate back in 1984 when uh, the TV revenues were just $16 million per team to today is that football is a business and you've got to operate it like a business. It's got to be done in a professional manner like a business and you've got to have culture and guidelines to operate the business effectively. And so he brought this intellectual thinking to it. I wrote about it in the book. He, one of the first things he said to me, and I mean no disrespect to gym teachers, but he said, don't end up being an overpaid gym teacher. And what he meant was, don't be the guy that just rolls the ball out and plays kickball. Be somebody who's smart and can help the players grow intellectually. And that's, that, that left an indelible impression on me. And one of the things that he talks about from a scouting perspective, and, and you were a scout with him, was about working smarter and not harder. And, and ultimately that was around kind of understanding the context of analyzing a player, which again, talking about, you know, even how we recruit in the, the business world, I don't think we really do a very good job at that. Uh, what did that what did that do for you in terms of your understanding of analyzing uh, a particular player that you were looking at? Well, I think you can't analyze a player unless you know what you want. You know, the FBI doesn't open up the phone directory and start looking for serial killers. <laughs> you know, the FBI has a profile for what they believe is the makeup of a serial killer. And it's the same thing with building an organization or building a football team. Like, when you want to hire somebody in your company, if you don't write down the, the eight traits that you have to have with the person you
you hire. Three of them are absolutely non-negotiable. Five of them might be negotiable. But you've got to have these eight boundaries within the framework. Then you really don't know what you're looking for. Then you are what we call hunt and peck. You're just hunting and pecking, hoping you hit with somebody. And that never works. So it really starts internally. And that's what Walsh's big thing was. We're going to scout inside out, not outside in. I know what I want for my right tackle. I know what I want for my left tackle. I know what I need for my safety. I know what I need for my middle linebacker. And I know what I need for somebody who works in the personnel department. I've defined every position. But it's no different than Belichick. He says one of his mantras is do your job, right? Mm -hmm. Well, that's easy. But he defines what your job is. Now it's easier. Totally. And I think from a business perspective, and I've written about this, we, we never really understand the context, even from a broader perspective than that. You know, we would go and look to recruit a new salesperson purely based on their, the dollar figures. But, you know, understanding the dollar figures in the context of who the clients were and uh, what their territory was is more important than the dollar figure themselves. And I never, I think we don't really dig into that enough to really understand not only the role, but also who we're even bringing in for an interview and, and really analyzing in terms of bringing into our, into our organization. Yeah, I, I think, look, see this happen in college football. We see it happen in pro. Just because the guy's highly rated by someone else doesn't necessarily mean he can fit for what you want to do. 100%. And we talked about Bill Belichick earlier, and there's a couple of quotes in, in your book that I really love and I've been using in conversations with other people. One is we are not collecting talent, we are building a team. And the other is it's not the strength of individual players, it's the strength of how they function together. And we've done shows on cohesion uh, on this show before and, and digging into even some of the data around cohesion of teams. But you know, why do we still get this wrong? Why are we still looking at recruitment in isolation from an individual perspective rather than how they fit into the broader overall function of the team? Because we don't spend any time really defining what makes up a good team. I mean, look, Herb Brooks did this in 1980 when the United States hockey team had to go play the Russians. And he knew that if he tried to collect talent and get the best hockey players in the world, and his team, he still wasn't going to beat the Russians because they had the best players. So he decided to build a cohesive team that one day working together could beat the Russians. And maybe they would lose nine out of ten times. But on that one day, they were going to be the best team. And that one day is all that matters. And Belichick's taken that principle and magnified it. Because, look, the system is rigged against them. The system is a back-end loaded system. The system is when it rewards the loser with the higher picks. It rewards the losers with the, the position in the draft. Whereas he's the winner, and he's still beating people because he's figured out the variances within him what he has to do, and he knows what he's looking for in every single player. So he's able to, really, he's Charlie Munger in the sense that he can see variances ahead of the time and then go play those. I mean, no better example than winning a Super Bowl with a running game this year when most of the league's in four receivers and throwing it all over the place. I have my own perspectives on this, but how much is he uh, perceived incorrectly in the modern media? Well, they don't really understand him. I mean, I don't know if it's fair to judge the media because they, they don't really understand him. They don't understand the dynamics of team building. They don't understand the dynamics of how you create mental toughness. 
they they're they're evaluating him from a different place in time where they don't really understand it, and they're doing it, and they're saying it with such authority, and they really to quote the great Jim Mora, they don't know they don't know, and so they're they're judging him, and they really have no business judging him because who could judge the the guy that's building mental toughness? Has any of those people gone to school to understand what what constitutes how to develop mental toughness in human beings? No. Has any of the writers gone and understand leadership at the highest form? No. The reason he doesn't talk to the media and give out information isn't because he hates them. It's because it affects his culture. It affects his culture. And he protects his culture every single day. And so, therefore, if he gives away information, he's affecting his culture. He's not going to do that. But the media can't see it. For example, Years ago, maybe three years ago, the NFL never mandated that mini camps, the players didn't wear jersey numbers. So the Patriots would have their mini, would have their offensive, uh, we call them OTA days, and no player would have numbers. Now the media took that as Belichick's just messing with our head. He just doesn't want us to know who the players are. But that's so self-serving. Belichick didn't put numbers on the players because he wanted the players to communicate with one another without having to see what number it was. So if you don't understand what he's doing, how can you critique him? Couldn't agree more. And there's a couple of passages in the Football Life documentary on him. As a coaching geek myself, and even as a coach from outside of the sport, you know, my sports Aussie rules, there's elements of that and just snippets of vision that you can see that that is not the same character that you see at the press conference. And this is someone with extraordinarily high emotional intelligence that, yeah, is uh, essentially creating a character for, for the outward-facing uh, media versus um, the internal-facing person that would actually front the players. Al Davis taught me this years ago, and I think people really don't understand this very well, is when you are a head coach in the NFL or if you're a CEO of a company, you have to figure out every time you speak who you're talking to. Now, when you're a head coach of an NFL team, it's real easy. You're talking to three people. You're talking to the owner, you're talking to the fan base, and you're talking to your team. So when you stand in front of the media, you have to address those three areas with every one of your conferences. If you don't pay attention to that, your culture goes away. I'll give you the perfect example. There's a man by the name of Gerald Ratner. In 1991, in London, he owned a company that was selling jewelry. It was worth over a half a billion dollars. He gave a speech to the London Economics Forum. It had 6,000 people there. And he said in his speech, he said, people ask me all the time, how can we make this so easily? And how can we make so much profit on our jewelry? And he says, I tell them it's complete crap. <laughs> his company in three days without the media, without the World Wide Web, without anything that was happening in 1991 that's happening today, without that instantaneous culture we live in today, his company lost half of, half of its value within three days. And it went out of business within a year. Because of that one line, that is what you're talking, that's what I'm talking about. When you talk to the team or you talk to anybody, when you're talking to the media, you got to know who you're talking to. 
one of the things that really stood out for me from your book and one of the passages that I highlighted on my Kindle, and I wish I could have highlighted it more than once, but there's a passage about Bill admitting and and putting his hand up that he screws up in particular times and admitting that to the team. Again, going back to the stuff that you would never really see, but you know that's something that's being popularized in organizational psychology now as well. There's leaders like Sheryl Sandberg who will do the same thing where, you know, in front of her team, she'll say, that was me and I screwed up. But it's just something that we don't traditionally see articulated in the media, but it's such a core part of a coach's role internally, right? Yeah. I mean, look, it's one of the management, it's one of the temples of leadership, right? It's called management of trust. If the players don't trust you to be honest with yourself, how can they trust you? You know, now you can't, you, you know, Walsh used to say this all the time when he would talk to scouts. He would say, when you go to a team that's losing, don't listen to the coaches about the players. And the reason he didn't want you to listen to the play- coaches about the players is because the coaches were going to blame the players for the losing. They never held themselves accountable. And therefore, you know, everything was always the players' fault. Meanwhile, you and I both know that when you win, everybody does it together. When you lose, there's, there's blame to go around for everybody. And if you won't admit it, you lose your team. Totally. And that hooks on to something else that you wrote about, which I think was really interesting that I would love to have conversations in the, the corporate space around. You wrote that you can't bullshit an NFL locker room. And you're talking about the players understanding their own roles, who the good players are, who the, the bad players are, uh, even who the the organizational favorites are. But that's something that we never talk about from team dynamics perspective either, is that a, a team is incredibly intelligent amongst itself and everyone really knows who the key contributors are. And I think understanding that and even being able to talk about it is incredibly liberating from a, a dynamics perspective. Yeah, and I think it's one of Tom Brady's greatest virtues because Tom allows himself to be coached like he's a college free agent. Tom allows himself to, to sit there and allows Belichick to coach him hard, which then allows him to coach every other great player. And that's the one thing about the Patriots is there's no stars. There's a lot of really good players, but they all have been lectured and been taught a course in football and leadership that it's about the team. The pack is more important than the lone wolf. And so that's what they've really spent all their time on. And Brady allows that to happen. And when you have that dynamic, Tim Duncan allowed it in, in San Antonio with the Spurs. When you allow that to happen, you know, you become a dynasty. Look, let's face it. The Patriots have won 74 games in the last five years. The next closest team to them are the New England, are the Pittsburgh Steelers at 57. They've lapped the field. They've lapped the field. And there's a reason they have is because collectively as a team, they're much better than everybody else. And so to dig into that a little bit, why is that as someone who's seen on the inside, because this is obviously a, a hot button topic and everyone wants to talk about the culture. And even the first chapter of your book is called culture beats everything, but where, where do they get the power dynamics right? And where do others get the power dynamics wrong? Because it's not just one thing. There's an ownership perspective. There's the, the recruitment perspective. There's you know, corporate within the organization, you know, the business side, there's the, the sporting side of the business. How do they keep getting it so right and everyone else is struggling to catch up? Because he sees his job 
as the guy who installs the cult culture. He sees his job as the guy who cultivates the culture. And most importantly, he sees his main job as the guy who maintains the culture. So every day at 8 o'clock when they have a team meeting, he is basically teaching a class in culture. He's talking about it. That's why mission statements are a crock of crap. Because when they, people walk in the door, they read the letters, and they just don't, it doesn't empower them. Nobody's teaching them about what this company really wants to be. This is who we are. Well, if he teaches a class every day on what we are. You know, that's not what we're going to do. We don't do that. He doesn't raise his voice. He's very calm and collected about it. Look, we're not going to tolerate this. This is unacceptable here. And if, he, if, if a player does it again, they're going to get fired. There's, there is accountability within his words. And the only way you can create culture is by doing that. You have to stay on it. It isn't like you can just sprinkle pixie ducks in the locker room and say, oh, we've got a great culture. He works on it. Yeah, I think broadening that out to it, from my perspective, it seems that there is a very linear way of assessing that outside of the Patriots. So the second team that you named there, the Steelers, uh, similar kind of thing. They understand who they are and, and what they're looking to do. You know, you think about other recent Super Bowl winners, you've got the Giants, the the Packers, they all seem to mirror this understanding of understanding their own internal culture and being unwilling to be shifted by anything that's going on outside of that organization. Yeah, and but now the Giants have won 31 games in the last five years. <laughs> so the Giants is really have had a hard time understanding their ability to be adaptive and be, and be divergent in thought. They keep thinking that their culture is good, and it's not. It's not a good culture. And so their judgment on decisions have been horrendous, and that's why they've won. After five years, when you've won 31 games, something's really wrong. You've got to sit down and break it down. Green Bay, one of the better teams. I mean, they've been able to maintain their culture. They've had ups. They've had downs. They haven't won as much as their fans would like them to win. But on a whole, they get it because when Ted Thompson was there, it was easier to have a culture because he was always getting young players into the building. So it was easy then. So they just basically, he didn't have to integrate pro players into the system because he never signed free agents. He didn't care about it. So it was always a young team. It was like a college team in Green Bay. Now they're going to change a little bit how they do it. It'd be fascinating to see how they adapt to that culture. You've been on the outside now, and you can kind of sit and assess a lot of what's going on. What do you make of what the Rams have achieved? You know, a lot was made of obviously the move back to Los Angeles. You've got an ownership group that owns a whole heap of sports properties. I'm an Arsenal fan, so they're in that same group. And a lot is talked about from their perspective in terms of not spending money and blah, blah, blah. But ultimately what they've done is moved a team, hired a young head coach and improved astronomically within about two years. So as an outsider looking in, what do you make of that? Well, I think they've done a great job of Sean McVay has basically been very divergent in thought. I think he saw this quarterback in Jared Goff and he realized his limitations. And so he devised an offense around Goff that could make him mostly effective. And he's fooled the league into believing that Goff might be this great player, when in reality he's in the perfect system for him and it operates well. Now, he ran into a buzzsaw with the Patriots because the Patriots are really good coaches 
and they saw right through their systems. But you got to give McVeigh a ton of credit for being really divergent in thought and also being secure in who he was as a person to allow Wade Phillips to come in and run his defense and allowing him himself to become a head coach and their special teams coach, John Fossil. So they've done a good job of their talent base with their coaching staff, and McVay's done a great job of coaching the quarterback to maximize his full ability. One of the quotes in my book was from Igor Kokoskov, who's the Phoenix Suns head coach, and what he's talking about is that in basketball, unless you're Phil Jackson or Pat Riley, you essentially don't get to have a style and you need to be uh, adaptive like you just talked about and not let your ego get in the way. You know, if you've got Shaquille O'Neal, then you become a, a down low team. And if you've got an outside shooter like Steph Curry or Clay Thompson, you become an outside shooting team. Why is the ego side of football coaches still there? And why aren't more coaches adaptive in style like you were talking about with Sean McVay? Because we have so many guys that, uh, that, have, that are so young and they don't know any other way. They've learned their way. It's like this, you know, they just know how to cook it one way. And they haven't tried, they haven't been able to, they haven't been to enough places. I mean, look, this, the whole system is rigged. It's backwards, right? So as you gain experience, you know, you become a better leader. You become a better employee. You become better at everything. But the system wants to hire young people. Well, most of the time, you're not even ready to be the person, you be the head coach by the time you get the job. You need to go test your services and see yourself develop as a leader, as a person. And unfortunately, in the NFL, they want young. You know, they want young. They want people who haven't made mistakes because they don't want to put somebody in a press conference that they could ask questions about their abilities and say, you did this bad, you did that bad. They, they want a pure, perfect person, and that pure, perfect person has made no mistakes, and that's the guy that's going to fail. You, got, you learn from your mistakes. That's the best thing you have going for you. Yeah, it's an odd one, even in terms of there are coaches that make it to the top without having ever actually been a head coach before, which is kind of bizarre when you think about it. Yeah, I mean, you know, Henry Kissinger says in his memoirs, when you go to Washington, you borrow the intellectual power you bring and you can't renew it once it's there. Well, it's a little bit like the NFL. When you become a head coach, you're borrowing on the intellectual powers and you can't renew it when you're a head coach. And the problem is, the problem really is, that you didn't bring it up when you're so young, you don't have enough intellectual power. You know, Chip, Kelly, Chip Conley writes about it in his book, you know, where he talks about experience matters. And we live in an age where because of, you know, the salaries go up, because money becomes such a people want to hire less experience, not more. As someone that comes from the scouting side of things and what people might be interested in listening, what does a, a modern... NFL scout look like? What are these guys up to on a day-to-day basis now? Are they still like you were, you know, trolling the countryside, making phone calls to anyone and everyone who can get them information? Or is there a a different way of doing things now than when you were in the business? I think there's a, I think the problem is there's not a different way. The problem is we're still utilizing the methodology that was in place when we were using 16 millimeter film. You know, for example, when I first started in the league, you know, there was only 16-millimeter film. So you had to go to Texas A&M to watch tape. It was too expensive to duplicate that tape and have it in your office. So you had to fly down there, you had to watch that tape, and then they only had maybe two or three copies of the tape, and so you had to hope one of those copies were there and you sat there and watched it. So 
really it was hard. You had to be on the road. Today, you can sit in your office in New England or you can sit in your office in Green Bay and watch every college game on your iPad. You can watch every pro game on your iPad. You don't have to. So what's more important than the evaluation? It's the information about the player's character. That's what you have to go find out. Now, the problem number two is most of the coaches aren't going to tell you honestly about the players because they have to recruit too. And if they get caught bad-mouthing one of their own players, they're, go- they're not going to get new players. So they're going to basically not tell you the whole truth, nothing but the truth. So you've got to spend time outside the football complex to learn about the players. <clears throat> if not, you're going to find you're going to learn more about the player after you draft them than before. And the object of scouting is to learn more about them before than after. And from a combine perspective and having worked at the Raiders under someone who seems to be influenced by the combine quite a bit, but actually knew what he was looking for. Uh, like what is the role of the combine now and, and why are teams still kind of being influenced by 40 times when again, back to something we talked about earlier, the, the context is off. So whether I can run a, a fast 40 with no pads on, or I can do the gauntlet in X amount of time, you know, Catching seven passes never happens on a field. So what what role does it play, and is it still relevant, or could we be loading up on something different like more time with the players? Well, I think we should spend more time with, we should spend more time with the players. The workouts, you know, because characters is important, and we don't get enough time with the players. The medical is really important. Those are the two things at the combine, the medical grade, the character grade. Now, the workouts, you know, look, Guy runs the 40 at the combine, he runs a good time, he won't run again. Guy runs a bad time, he'll run again, he'll get his time down. It all comes back to, you know, we say we're not going to judge this thing in the underwear athletic, but as soon as the combine happens, as soon as somebody runs a fast time, we can't say he's moved, we can't wait to announce that he's moving up in the draft. And so, you know, it's just, it's eye candy, and I think you have to take it into account. You've got to look at it like you're a baker and say it's just one of the ingredients that is going to make the cake. It isn't going to be the whole thing. And as someone who's been in the, the, the general manager's seat, I'm interested in the role of data and, and how it plays now. We've you know, heard stories like your Sashi Browns, and that seems to have, funnily enough, kind of come off for Cleveland in, in one way, shape, or form. How much of, of the role of a general manager or the scouting department now is that Pure scouting like you were doing? Well, I think the role of the general manager is twofold. I think he's got to do a good job of handling the coach, helping the coach. Right. And developing the culture. He's as much a part of the culture as anybody. If he has his own agenda on players, then the culture is going to get ruined. And he's got to let the coach be the spokesman for the team because there can only be one spokesman. And the players have to believe they work for the coach, not for the general manager. Mm-hmm. You know, in baseball, the dynamic's different. The players need to know who they work for. And so that's really important. And, and I think he's got to be there. Look, analytics is important, but we're not a statistic-based sport. Baseball is. Now, there's some numbers that you can get from analytics that help you in football, no doubt. And you should utilize them. Because remember, we're in the information business. But there's nobody going to spit out and say, like, take this right-handed pitcher because – he can throw the ball over the plate 86% of the time. No, that's not going to happen in football. But they can lead you down the path towards finding out about the player. 
So from your perspective, who who are you looking at at the moment that you like from either a GM perspective, a coach perspective? Who do you follow and, and really jive with? Well, I think when you look at it, I think the league is filled with just, you know, like I wrote about in the book, there's about eight teams that really understand it. I'm fascinated to see what Brian Flores, who I like as a person, I think what he'll do in Miami and trying to install his culture down there. I'm interested to see that. You know, I'm interested to see what Green Bay is going to do because they've shifted what they're doing from the dynamics of now Mark Murphy, the president, is really involved in the football team. So it's going to be fascinating to see how that goes. Uh, you know, I, I think what Pittsburgh does, I think Pittsburgh's fascinating because Pittsburgh said, you know what, we got to get our culture right again. And they got rid of Antonio Brown. I like following the Raiders because I'm interested to see if Gruden's going to have a plan or if he's just going to line item every single player that comes out. That's what it appears like to me. So for me, I think you got to take every team and study them so you can learn lessons from them, like how they do things. What are they trying to do? Can you get anything from them? I think Sean Payton's a great coach. I love watching him work his roster. You know, I think Bill does an incredible job of working his roster. Mm-hmm. And I think those are the things you look for because if you just – if you just learn from your own mistakes, you're going to get fired. You got to learn from other people's. Totally. And what's really interesting is, and you wrote about this as well, how the fact that you can't really just pick up cultural elements from one spot. Everyone's been trying this with the Patriots for almost a generation now to just pick it up and drop it somewhere else. Kansas City is obviously a one that everyone resonates with. But as these guys move around, they really need to understand the culture of that organization, whether it be the Dolphins or uh, wherever they end up, don't they? It, it, it's imperative to actually understand the organization and then kind of layer your ideas of culture over the top of that. Right. I think what most people make the mistake of football guys really particularly is when they get the job, they talk about the first 100 days. They talk about the you know what they're going to do, how they're going to do it. Instead, what they really should do is, is spend time trying to figure out how they got the job, like what went wrong before they walked in the building. What was going wrong in the building? Really spend time understanding that. If you get that, then you can fix the problems. But if you come in without that knowledge, you won't fix the problem. Well, Ted Sunquist talked about this, and I've spoken to Ted a bunch of times and done some writing for him, and he was one of the interviews for my book. How much of that actually gets disclosed, though? Like, How much can really come out in these one-day interviews that coaches get? Not much. I mean, if, well, it depends on how you ask the questions. Right. You know, if you ask somebody, does he work hard, they'll give you an answer, yeah, I work hard. But if you ask somebody, give me three examples of how habits when you were in high school, when you were in college, and today, that's a harder question. But you still ask them if they work hard, right? Mm-hmm. And so you've got to shape the questions so that you can get the answers you need to hear. No, absolutely. And there's, you know, again, I, I wrote about this in my book and. I think that same principle applies in the business world. We, again, we just interview on this uh, face value thing, you know, resume. I hand in my resume and then you're going to ask me questions back about that. We never actually dig into what the fundamental problem is and whether I can help solve that. And, you know, when, when you add that up happening year after year after year, you can end up with a whole organization full of people who can't solve the problem and, uh, just have raw skills that don't apply to the problem. So uh, it, it's completely crippling for businesses as well as football teams. No doubt. And I think what happens is is because you don't really spend enough time really identifying the – look, the one thing you have to do after every football game 
is figure out why you won or why you lost. It's the hardest thing to do in sports. And it's not the referees made a bad call, we lost. No. Uh, you know, we were just so much smarter than them, we won. It's deeper than that. And until you can do that on a, on a continual basis, you're never going to fix your problems. You're constantly trying to mod- – you're like a race car pit crew. You're trying to solve the problems and figure out. And remember, we're in a veterinarian business, so there's nobody talks to us that says, hey, I'm, you know, I got, this is your problem with your team. You have to do it through checks and balances. I'm interested, since releasing the book, and I ask this of most of the authors that come on, what have people latched onto that – uh, you maybe didn't anticipate. You know, as an author, you generally have your favorite passages or favorite chapters or things that you think are really going to resonate. And once you give it to the audience, it becomes something different. So has anything really stood out to you? Uh, you know, I think when I wrote the special teams chapter, I didn't think it was going to be very well-received. And I, I think it was really more well-received than I thought because it really has that all-in mentality of how to create culture. And I think more than anything, I didn't think people would get that was, the book was really a leadership culture book, not a football book. I think that's what makes me most happy about the book. The book was never intended to be a book about football. It was a book about culture and leadership. Mine too. And mine is littered with sports examples from all over the world, but ultimately it's a, a leadership and culture book. And uh, even, yeah, there's, there's some misconceptions too with even the the top of the top, you know, start with why is a book about communication, not about leadership. But, uh, you know, I guess, right. again, it's uh, how the audience perceives it in the end is, is what's right. So it's just an interesting process um, to go through. And yeah, you have your, your chapters that you think are, are your baby and that are really going to hit home. And then it's the one about special teams that people <laughs> end up loving. Yeah, I thought the chapter that I wrote about the breakdown of the week of the game between the Ravens and the Patriots would be the most popular chapter. And I'm not saying people don't like it, but I think I've heard more commentary about team building and about the special teams. Well, I put it on my list of 12 leadership books to read if you're a leader. Again, as a, a Bill Walsh fan, you know, I have all of the books, including the ones that are out of circulation. And, and someone who's obviously uh, impacted by, by Bill Belichick as well uh, in terms of my coaching and, and ideas that I pinch from him. Uh, where can people find you, Mike? They can, where can they follow you and, and how can they find the book? Well, they can find the book on any one of your online retailers or at bookstores worldwide. It's there. Uh, it's still selling at a really good pace. We've, we've crossed over a couple thresholds, which is great. And so, you know, you can buy it online or you can buy it at your bookstore. Or me... Right now, you can, I, you can read my work at The Athletic. Uh, I write once a week now for The Athletic. And then I also will soon be doing a podcast uh, announcement probably coming first part of April. Uh, with that, it'll, it'll be similar to what I did. GM Street will be similar to that and a little bit of uh, something else too. So those are the two places for right now. And they can follow you on Twitter as well. You, know, you talk about all sorts of different things there, not just football. Uh, you're a good follow. So, um, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, Twitter can be so negative at times, can it? I mean, it's just you know, and, and and sometimes maybe I'm too negative too. But I think I think that you know what you want to try to do is create thought in the people. I think that's you know, it's like listening to music. There's a reason why you know if you're when I'm 20, one of Springsteen's songs impacted me one way, and when I'm 60, it impacts me another way. So I think that's what you try to do 
with everyday conversation with people is trying to impact them in a way to where it fits their narrative. Yeah, well, we had a bit of a an inside joke going on the weekend and that got completely misunderstood as well. So yeah. Uh, but, but you do try your best. I'll, I'll give you that. You, you know, you'll respond to tweets and, um, so you are putting your effort into being positive. So, uh, kudos to you for that. Yeah. I mean, look, I, you know, I tell people this all the time. I got yelled at by Al Davis for 10 years. I don't think anybody on Twitter carry as much cachet and, 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 and intelligence and, you know, intimidation than Al Davis. I can handle it. <laughs> no, you you couldn't imagine. You could never imagine. No one could. No, I I cannot. Um, the only thing I can think of is my mum, but I, I don't think she uh, stacks up to Al Davis getting that phone call. <laughs> uh, the book is Gridiron Genius. You are Michael Lombardi. Uh, thanks for coming on, mate. Again, a long time making, but uh, we got there. And thanks for imparting some wisdom on us today. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. The Where Others Won't podcast is recorded at Apollo Studios in downtown Toronto and is produced and edited by Adam Esker. You can book me to speak by the Where Others Won't book or send me an email at codyroyal.com.